Well, this morning I am beginning a new series on the letter to the Colossians, our letter, our lesson of the day. Uh, Lord willing, about once a month over the next several months, we will work our way through the letter, section by section. By way of introduction, I want to say a bit about the circumstances and the occasion for Paul writing this letter. And then we will look more closely at these first eight verses of chapter one. The letter starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. A brief word about Colossae and Paul's apostolic letter writing. Colossae was a remote inland town located in the Roman province of Asia in what is now modern day Turkey. And from what we can tell from the book of Acts, Paul actually never went to Colossae or to any of the churches there in that region, the Lycus River Valley. Paul says in chapter two of this letter that he had never seen these Christians face to face. He'd never met them. He's only heard of them from reports from his fellow missionaries like Epaphras, who is mentioned here. It's very likely that he had never been to Colossae or to the Lycus River Valley. Colossians 4 mentions two other groups there in that valley, the church of Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Those are two cities that are right next to Colossae. All of these were churches that were established by other Christians working on behalf of Paul. Paul says that Epaphras is a servant on our behalf. So he's commissioned under Paul's apostolic authority. So if if Paul never went there himself or even met these Christians, how did these churches get started in the first place? And why is Paul writing to them? Well, these three towns I've mentioned, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, were about 100 miles inland from the city of Ephesus, which uh, Acts chapter 19 and 20 uh, tell us that Paul visited. So Paul was uh, at the city of Ephesus. He spent about three years total there, preaching and teaching and making disciples. He started out in Ephesus preaching in the synagogue for about three months. And he gained some disciples from the Jewish community, but then he had to move on. He says they were stubborn. They didn't believe the gospel. They refused to believe the gospel. And so he sets up shop in this Gentile lecture hall known as the Hall of Tyrannus. And he preaches there daily. Acts 19 says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It was during this time that many people were converted in the city of Ephesus and in the surrounding cities. So much so that Acts says all the residents of Asia heard this word. The gospel that Paul had been preaching was bearing fruit in this region of Asia Minor and in the lives of the people in Ephesus. Uh, We're told all kinds of fascinating stories. There are people who had practiced magic for years, who started burning their books. Acts tells us the combined value of all of those books that they burned there in in Ephesus was 50,000 pieces of silver. 
which uh, is roughly four or five million dollars in today's terms. Hey, they're burning all their books. They're casting aside, abandoning their former pagan lifestyles to follow Christ, even at great cost to themselves. We're told about these craftsmen who made their living from selling silver shrines and idols, and they start to get worried because they're losing so much business. Nobody's buying the idols anymore. They gather all the tradesmen together and they complain. Listen to this quote from uh, Acts 19. They say that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. People throughout almost all of Asia are being persuaded by Paul. These craftsmen started a great riot that got Paul and his companions in a lot of trouble and eventually resulted in Paul leaving for Macedonia. So it was likely during this fruitful three-year period in Ephesus that people like Epaphras and Philemon and Archippus, who are mentioned in these letters, were converted. These men were from Colossae. And Paul tells us in the letter that it was Epaphras who brought the gospel to the Colossians, acting on behalf of the Apostle Paul. He likely planted this church in Colossae and the ones in Laodicea and Hierapolis. The seed of the gospel that Paul was sowing bore fruit in Epaphras' own life. And then Epaphras, in turn, brought this fruitful gospel to his hometown of Colossae. At the time of this letter, Epaphras is the one who is bringing back a report of this new church, of these new Christians, to Paul, which takes up the uh, occasion of the letter. We know from the end of the letter that Paul is writing from prison. He's in prison. In fact, Paul wrote uh, at least four apostolic letters from prison, Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians, and Colossians. Paul did not view his hard circumstances and trials, in this case being in prison, as an excuse to take a break from ministering to others. How many of us are so ready to throw the towel in or to back off from service at the first sign of trouble? Paul writes four of his greatest letters from prison. He's exercising this apostolic office even in the midst of an extremely difficult life circumstance. In fact, Paul views his own afflictions as part of the way that Christ wants him to minister to the body of Christ. He says he's filling up uh, the sufferings of Christ in his afflictions. God uses hard circumstances in the lives of his saints to accomplish his purposes, not only for you individually, not only what the Lord's doing in your own life through the trial, but also for the body of Christ, the church. When one member suffers, The Lord can use that affliction for the benefit of others if we open ourselves up to that. So Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he tells us, and he's given this unique privilege of helping to lay the foundation of the church by making the word of God fully known. The risen Christ, after appearing to him on the road to Damascus, commissioned Paul directly to proclaim the gospel and to establish churches through his teaching and shepherding. And letter writing, like this letter here, was one of the ways that Paul exercised this shepherding office. 
The Lord saw fit to make these Holy Spirit-inspired letters from the Apostle the foundation of our faith, along with the Old Testament Scriptures and the Gospels. This is why we take the time to work through these ancient letters in detail like we're doing this morning. To outsiders, we appear to be scrutinizing over a piece of ancient mail. Yes, we are listening in on a particular historical situation, but through these letters, the Spirit is still speaking to the churches throughout the centuries, including today. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles' witness preserved for us in the New Testament documents are that apostolic foundation. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, speaking of the apostles, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, Peter here affirms the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when the prophets and apostles speak and write. They were eyewitnesses. They were given this unique authority to speak from God. They're carried along, they're borne along by the Holy Spirit to communicate what he has to say to the churches. And these letters are God's very word as a result, carrying the authority of Christ himself to the church. Peter goes on in 2 Peter to include Paul, who wasn't there on the mountain hearing that voice, uh, in this spirit-inspired apostolic authority as well. He says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Paul's own letters are placed alongside the scriptures because they carry the same spirit-inspired authority. Yes, Paul wasn't on the mountain with Peter, but Jesus himself, the risen Christ himself, appeared to Paul. And so he was an eyewitness to Christ's glory, and he was uniquely commissioned. Peter is saying that Paul's letters are scripture. This is why Paul wants this letter, Colossians, read among the church there in Colossae and to the church in Laodicea, among other churches. He tells them that in chapter 4, to have this letter read among all churches. Likewise, the letter that he sent to the Laodiceans, he wants read to the Colossians. These letters were circulated uh, among the early church so that they would have the spirit-inspired instruction in the faith. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, by the plan of God. He's given a unique role to play 
in that plan. He's bearing the authority of Jesus Christ in this instruction. And this is why we take the time to work through these letters among the other scriptures in our sermons. So Paul is shepherding this church of new Christians in Colossae from afar. He is proclaiming the truth of the gospel from a prison cell, writing this letter. And his aim with this letter is to present these new Christians mature in Christ. That's what he says. He wants them to be mature in Christ. He wants them to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. It's evident from the letter that there were errors that were starting to creep in that Paul needed to head off. Okay, that's, that's the shepherding aspect here. He's reminding them of the truth. He's heading them off on these errors that are creeping in. Uh, he needed to provide instruction against these errors. And we'll look in the, at those errors in more detail in future sermons as we work through the letter. But we can summarize the letter as a whole as an effort to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ. Okay, we have access to the Father through Christ. In Christ, we have everything that we need from beginning to end. Paul declares grace and peace to this church as he does in all his letters. And this is not a mere platitude for Paul, but a summary of the word that he brings. God has manifested and extended his grace to this church in Christ. And through this grace, they now have peace with God. Every word Paul brings to them flows from that reality, from grace and peace. This is why he can address them as saints and faithful brothers. By God's grace, they are now in Christ and are now set apart. They're holy. They're sanctified by the blood of Christ. They are in Colossae, yes, but they are also in Christ. To the saints in Colossae and in Christ. God has graciously given them a dual citizenship that has changed the trajectory of their whole lives. Though the Colossians are members of a particular earthly community where they are called to serve and to witness, they are also members of the true people of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the family of God. They were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. Their true life is now hidden with Christ in God. And the same applies to us. Though we are in Birmingham, we are at the same time fundamentally in Christ. Everything we do ought to be ordered from that fundamental reality. It is that reality that Paul calls the church back to reflect on. Before Paul gets to these areas of false teaching that I mentioned and how these Christians are to respond to that and to think, he begins this letter as he does with others uh, with a thanksgiving to God, with a thanksgiving to God. And for the remainder of our time this morning, we will consider this prayer of thanksgiving. Paul says in verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, ever since Paul has heard about the fruit of the gospel in Colossae, he has been praying for these new Christians that he's never met. Notice he's, his thanksgiving for this fruit is given to God. He is thanking God because God has graciously done this marvelous work in the lives of these people. Epaphras sowed the seed, yes, but the Lord gave the increase. As we said before, the Christian life 
uh, is God's grace in Christ from beginning to end. Paul is not praising the Colossians for the virtues that he sees in them. He's not praising them directly, but he's giving glory to God for the good things that God has done in them and is continuing to do in them. God's grace leads to our gratitude. God is the giver of all good gifts. And his greatest gift to us is our salvation in Christ, which bears this fruit. Paul packs a lot into this prayer of thanksgiving. He gives a Trinitarian thanksgiving for the threefold fruit of the gospel. A Trinitarian thanksgiving for the threefold fruit of the gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the gospel, produce faith, hope, and love. It's Trinitarian. He thanks the Father for their faith in Jesus and their love in the Spirit that are both grounded in the hope laid up for them in heaven. The Father sent His Son to accomplish the work that has taken effect in the lives of the saints through His Spirit. This Trinitarian work results in a threefold fruit, faith, hope, and love. Or as Paul puts it here, faith and love grounded in hope. Paul likes this triad of faith, hope, and love. And he's inviting the Colossians to give thanks with him for God's gracious gifts of faith, hope, and love. Uh, He mentions these three theological virtues in a number of places. I'll give you just a few of them here. Uh, The famous one from 1 Corinthians 13. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He says in Galatians 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. First Thessalonians 1, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 5, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay, several other places throughout the New Testament, he mentions these three. These theological virtues are the essential fruit of the gospel. They're the essential fruit of the gospel. All three work together and cannot exist without one another. As Augustine said, the faith that works by love cannot exist without hope. Thus it is that love is not without hope, and hope is not without love, and neither hope nor love are without faith. These three gifts are always working together. The whole of our Christian life springs from these virtues. Everything that we do in response to God's grace to us in the gospel can be related to these virtues. Let's look at each of these fruits of the gospel as they appear in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Paul says in verse four, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Again, he thanks God for this fruit. He thanks God for their faith in Christ, because their faith is a gift from God. He doesn't say, great job making the right decision. No, he thanks God first and foremost 
for bearing the fruit of faith when the gospel was, was proclaimed to them. It is God who bore the fruit of faith in these Christians when they heard this word of truth, the gospel. Epaphras is the beloved fellow servant who taught them this truth, but God uses means, right? He uses means to bring about the gospel, gospel of truth. He uses preachers and people to speak the word of truth. Paul preached the word in Ephesus years before, which bore fruit in Epaphras. Epaphras preached the word to the Colossians, which bore fruit in them. God worked through these means to bring about faith in the Colossians. Paul says that they heard it and they understood the grace of God in truth. That is how the gospel began bearing fruit and increasing among them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Faith, as it grows, includes knowledge, assent, and trust. They heard and they understood that Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day and now rules and reigns in heaven. They received and they believed this word of truth and now share in union with Christ. But this faith is not merely a, a past tense reality. He's not merely reflecting on uh, that time when they believed, not just the beginning of the Christian life. It continues through the whole of the Christian life. Paul says, as you received Christ, so walk in him. They are to remain faithful brothers. The Christian life is by faith from beginning to end. Paul is thanking God for their gift of faith, but he is writing to admonish them to continue in that gift, to continue in faith. As he goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, they will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gift of faith must be continued in, and that is the purpose of his letter, to admonish them to continue in it. The word of the gospel bore this fruit of faith in them, and it continues to bear that fruit as they continue to cling to Christ by faith. So this gospel fruit of faith is accomplished in them, uh, but it's also accompanied by another gift, another fruit of the word of the gospel, love. Paul thanks God because he has heard about their love for the saints. What he goes on in verse eight to call their love in the spirit. The word of the gospel bears the fruit of love for these brothers. God's grace toward us in Christ brings about peace between us and God, but it also establishes peace between us and each other. We are restored to one another and made into a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ, a new humanity, a people who share the bond of peace in the spirit. Because we are united to Christ, we are adopted sons and daughters and share God as our father. Paul says in chapter two that we are being knit together in love. And in chapter three, that this love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love in the spirit is the glue that holds us together, the thread that keeps us stitched to one another. Paul says that he has heard of this love from Epaphras, that Epaphras has made it known to him, their love in the spirit. This means that the fruit of love is evident, that it's visible. It's not merely a feeling, but manifests itself in visible action. 
Epaphras' report to Paul could hardly have been, you know, that church at Colossae, they just really, they just really love one another. Oh yeah, what makes you say that, Epaphras? I don't know, I just feel like they really feel lots of love towards one another. No, it's not, it's not a feeling like that. This love is a visible fruit that is evident. It's an evident fruit. It shows itself in acts of service, acts of service toward one another. Compassionate hearts, acts of kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. These are the visible manifestations of love for the saints, laying our lives down for each other. Jesus said in John 17 that the world will know we are Christians by our love for each other. When they see our love for each other expressed in our unity, they will know that the Father sent the Son. That's how Jesus says they'll know. They'll know that Jesus is the real deal by our unity with each other. Our love for one another is the mark that what has happened to us in Jesus is real. We are not just another social club. It is the visible sign of the Spirit's work in our midst. The Spirit gives us unity and harmony with one another. What else could explain why we are all gathered here? Why do we bother to come here? Why do we bother to spend time with one another? Why would we share meals with each other and take care of each other in financial and other tangible ways? Why are we there for each other to bear griefs and burdens and joys? Through Christ's death and resurrection, we have been reconciled to God, but also to one another. And we share union with Christ with one another. This overflows in evident and earnest love toward one another in the Spirit. The last gospel fruit that Paul mentions besides faith and love is hope. And this holds a unique place here uh, in relation to the other two virtues. Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, Paul says the fruit of faith and love are in some sense built upon hope. They're built upon hope because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Okay, that's how he's heard of the faith and love, because of the hope. That is the hope, it is the foundation or basis for both their faith and their love. The hope drives it, it motivates the faith and the love. It is this hope that inspires the love for the saints and the ongoing trust in Christ. So what is the hope? Hope could refer to an act like the act of hoping, I really hope that this thing that I want to happen, happens. It could also refer to an object, the thing that is being hoped for. And Paul has in mind here that second use. The hope, the object of their hope, the thing being hoped for, is laid up for them in heaven. That's why he says, which is laid up for you in heaven. It's stored, it's reserved for them in heaven. So what exactly is it? What is laid up in heaven for us that would drive our faith and our love. Well, if we keep reading in chapter one, we find Paul speaks of hope again, which gives us a clue of what he is talking about. In verse 27, he calls it the hope of glory. Listen to verse 27 here. He says, to them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles 
are the riches of the glory of this, mad, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, the hope of glory, that is the hope. This is the hope of resurrection glory, of resurrection life. You who are in union with Christ have confidence that you will be raised with him in a glorified body to a glorified existence in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our inheritance, the fullness of glorified life in Christ. That is the hope of glory. But Paul also says it's Christ in you. That's because that glorified resurrection existence is centered on a person. Christ is that hope who is laid up in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. We only have the hope of glory, the hope of a resurrected, glorified life forever with God because Christ has been raised for us. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father for us and we are in union with him. We will receive that inheritance of glory because we are in union with Christ. Your hope is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He and all his glorious resurrected life uh, we await is reserved in heaven for you. Nothing can touch it or hurt it. As Peter says, it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. We can be confident in this hope because God is the one who secures it. Our hope is not wishful thinking, I hope this will happen, but a confident trust in the person sitting at the right hand of the Father. So hearing that it's laid up for us, that it's reserved in heaven, could give you the impression that all of this is out of reach, that it's all yet to come, it's all future. What does this hope mean for us here and now? Well, Paul says that the hope is bearing fruit here and now. It's increasing through the whole world. Look at verse five again. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Hey, Paul uses the language here of Genesis 1, our Old Testament lesson, talking about the fruit of the gospel. He says it is bearing fruit and increasing. We should hear echoes of be fruitful and multiply. That's increasing, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That hope of glory that the Colossians have understood and learned is producing love for the saints. It's producing ongoing faith in Christ. Paul uses the same words again in verse 10. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, fruitful in good works and multiplying in the knowledge of God. Through the word of the gospel, we are increasing in our knowledge of God and we're bearing fruit, the fruit of good works. This is the fruit of the future hope, bearing fruit here and now. Faith and love. Just as we are growing in our knowledge of the Lord through his word, we should be growing in our fruit of good works toward one another. You can't have one without the other. These two things should go together. We can't be growing in knowledge with no fruit of works to show. And neither can we be all about works, but no knowledge. It's word and deed together here. This is the fruit that the hope of glory is producing here and now. But Paul doesn't merely give thanks for what God is doing in Colossae. He shows them that they are caught up into something much bigger 
than what is happening in their own personal lives and even in their local church. This fruitful gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in them, yes, but it's also doing this throughout the whole world. Okay, it's taking dominion over the earth through the preaching of the apostles and the evangelists. The book of Acts picks up the same language of be fruitful and multiply in a few places. Listen to a few of these here. Acts 6 says, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12 says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, so the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. Just as the people of God, the fruitful seed of Abraham, were increasing and multiplying in Egypt, so the word of the gospel is bearing fruit among the nations. It's uniting Jew and Gentile to the true seed of Abraham, so that the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Your descendants shall be multiplied like the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. The tiny mustard seed of the kingdom is growing into a great tree. The small leaven is leavening the whole loaf. Adam and Eve were called to reflect God's image by glorifying him and taking dominion of the earth for his glory. They were to be fruitful and multiply by producing lots of little image bearers who worshiped God and bore fruit in their own lives through their own increasing knowledge of God and uh, good works toward one another. They, of course, failed in that task. But Christ, the image of the invisible God who restores humanity through his life, death, and resurrection, came and accomplished what Adam failed. Christ is the last Adam that is fruitful and multiplies through his servants proclaiming the gospel of his victory over death, sin, and the devil. Through the proclamation of that work, that work of Christ, humanity is redeemed and the creation mandate is transformed in bearing fruit and multiplying redeemed image bearers who will rule and reign with Christ. This is the triumph of the fruitful gospel of Christ, the Christ who rules the cosmos. He is reconciling the whole world to himself. Paul wants to keep that at the forefront of these new Christians, this marvelous plan and victory. We all have a tendency to drift from this reality or to get distracted in the busyness of our lives. While we are going about doing the good work that we need to do, we can lose focus on how it's all connected to this greater story. And we need this reminder, just as the Colossians did, that we have been swept up into God's grand story of cosmic redemption. By the grace of God, we have heard the word of truth. And now we share in this same hope that produces faith and love. And we must not lose sight of this resurrection hope, this hope of glory. And when we keep our eyes on the hope of glory, it will not cause us to be overly preoccupied with the future. Rather, it will transform and renew everything we are doing here in the present. Do you see that? When you see the future perspective, when you see where everything is headed, it orders everything we're doing here and now. It spurs us on to the priorities that we need to focus on in this life. If we are confident in this hope of glory, how could we not cling to Christ in faith ever more fully? How could we not be spurred on to greater love and service toward our brothers and sisters who will share in this glorious life with us for eternity? 
And like Epaphras, how could we not share this hope with all those within our circle of influence? Not all of us are called to be church planners like Epaphras, but all of us should be prepared to give a reason for this hope that is within us. All of us should give thanks to God for this gospel that is bearing fruit and increasing in our lives, in our midst here at Trinity, and throughout the whole world. The God of all grace has reconciled you to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we bear witness to him in word and deed, he is reconciling the, word, the world to himself. So be fruitful and multiply. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.